All right, y'all, this is the very end of Ecclesiastes for me. We've got one more week in Ecclesiastes next week. Uh, But as for me, uh, this will be my last sermon in uh, in this great book, and it has been a tremendous journey for me personally. Uh, Next week, you do not want to miss, because we will hear an old man talk about the end of his life. So Solomon is writing almost in like the twilight of his, of his life, and he is really just, he's, he's starting to just uh, reflect, and so these are his final conclusions. So we thought it would be awesome uh, to get another old guy to preach an old guy's word. So we got the oldest guy in the room, uh, uh, Bruce Coulson, uh, and he actually volunteered. He's like, hey, can the old guy take chapter 12? And so next week we'll hear an old guy preach an old guy's message. So it will be, it really will be an amazing kind of tie into things. But we've been in this book since the beginning of September, and it has been a great journey. Uh, this, is, uh, this is what it has looked like for us, is that we, everything has been under the sun. And so we have learned things like, Everything under the sun is vanity. And if you remember what vanity is, it's a little bit like warm breath on a cold autumn or a fall day where you kind of breathe out and it just kind of goes away or blowing your, your birthday candles out. This is what it means to be van- uh, vanity means. It means short-lived, right? It's, it's fleeting. It's just it's going almost no place. It's there one second and it's gone the next. So everything under the sun is vanity. And so then he says, because everything is vain, right, there's nothing that we can gain. We try and we try and we try to hold on to things under the sun. And yet oftentimes it's like holding on to smoke or holding on to fog. It's impossible to do so. And so as we grasp at things, just don't be uh, surprised if it just slips through your fingers. The second thing we learned is that the search for meaning under the sun is, is vain, right? And so we, Solomon looked at lots of different places for meaning. And so he went to pleasure and he went to wisdom. He went to school and he went to all these types of places over and over and over in chapter 2. And he says, I sought out wisdom here and here and here and simply came up short every single venture that I went to put myself into, it actually just kind of just the, the bottom fell out. It was all vain. Chapter three said this, um, a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that, a time for mourning and laughing, being born and dying, war and peace, gathering and scattering. And it looked like these opposites. And what we heard is that everything is beautiful in its time. It's not just positive or negative. It's absolutely necessary or beautiful. And so every season that we've been in is absolutely necessary for us. We then look at work. Because all of us go to work and we looked all the way back to the creation account and how work was glorious and and ordained by God and we were built to work and have dominion and authority over all this earth. However, we saw that there is just a a motivation or something in our heart that gets a little bit sideways. And so we actually are motivated not by something that it will bring pleasure to God, but actually out of envy. It's this idea that other people have things that we don't and we want them for ourselves. And that's what actually motivates our work rather than what we were created to do. Then we moved on and we went into the church house. 
We looked at what we do on a Sunday morning as we gather to worship. And Solomon says it's not just the secular people and all of their money that really uh, gets the daggers. It's actually the church folks too. So he moves into what we do on a, in a Sunday morning as we gather and says, if you are motivated by something other than the creator himself, you too will spend your worship foolishly because you have shown up for yourself rather than showing up for your creator. We then said that we would be dissatisfied with money. It was that simple. Uh, I, I believe, actually, I think we're, we're in line with chapter 6 here. But he simply says money will never satisfy. Ever, ever, ever. You think it will. So that's the reason we go to work and we get our degrees. We think that money will actually make us happy. But in fact, the end of money itself is dissatisfaction. So if you're spending your life in here, or college students, if you think the degree that you're going to get is actually going to give you tons of money, actually let a guy who lived 3,000 years ago actually just hammer you this morning and say, yes, work and work hard. Yes, make money, right? However, if that's the end of all things, you will always be dissatisfied with it. We then go into chapter 7, and it's very similar to chapter 3, and it says that these, there's these seasons of adversity, seasons of mourning, seasons of funeral, seasons of things that are actually hard on us. And he called them these seasons of adversity, these places that are negative and, and ugly and painful and hurtful. And he says something very strong. He says these seasons of adversity are actually better for us. He actually says the word uh, like good-gooder or something, right? And so he says that the season of adversity, God can use and will use these things for his glory, for us to be patient in these seasons of adversity. Um, we then see that uh, there's wrong in this world, right? We see that the righteous actually get the short end of the stick where the wicked actually um, get um, succeed in life. And we, we talked about how that is so wrong. And yet uh, we just, we wonder what to do with that. We then looked at kings and we looked at wicked people again. And we learned that no matter how wise you are, there's nothing you can do to change Trump's mind, right? So, Yes, you think you're in control, or yes, you think you have wisdom, and yet with all of your wisdom, you can't control a king. You can't control a dictator. You can't control the people who are in ultimate authority. So what good is your wisdom in these two areas? One, in this idea of kingdom or authority or people who are over entire societies and these types of wickedness. There's nothing your wisdom will do to change a wicked man's heart. You're simply not in the control that you think you are. And then uh, last week, we said that uh, if you're alive, for you to live. If you're alive, you are to live. Here's where I'd like to draw a line here, one through nine. This is really hard to hear. Over and over and over, Solomon is telling us, what's the point? What's the point in all this? It's simply going to go up and smoke right before your eyes. And he's true. Like, he's very true in all of these conclusions. And then in chapter nine... And then today in chapter 11 and in chapter 12 next week, he comes and he changes his attitude just a little bit. 
because where all of this was dark and heavy on us, he turns it just a little bit with these three conclusions. The first conclusion is, if you are alive, live. And so it turns a little more positive that you are alive. There's nothing that you can do to debate whether you are alive right now. And so Solomon tells us, hey, just, just live. Live your life. Today, he's going to say something even stronger than just if you're alive, live. He says, if you're going to be alive and you're going to live, you're actually going to have to take a risk. And so if you find yourself alive, live. Today's conclusion is if you're alive, then you need to take risks. And then, of course, next week, we're going to hear that final conclusion that we are to fear God. So today, we're going to find ourselves in chapter 11. Chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes, and we are going to hear this refrain that you and I, that risk, R-I-S-K, risk, R-I-S-K, is good for us. Risk. Get it? Risk. Chapter 11 of, of, uh, of Ecclesiastes. Here's something you need to know of me, is that um, I hate large purchases, and if you've been around me in those seasons where I am about to purchase a home or purchase something, just a, a larger purchase, I simply can't pull the trigger. I just I can't. And so there are entire journal entries of math, you know, math and addition and subtraction and 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 expedited like figures. And I just I can't buy big things. I mean, I've got a realtor and I've got a wife and they have been able to pierce inside my soul and to see how rotten my heart is because I simply just like, I just, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I don't know why it is, but I just fear the idea of making a huge mistake that will change my life forever and forever change the complexion of my life and wife and kids and ever. I just can't do it. It takes me months to make big decisions because I feel like if I am wrong, and oftentimes we are, if I take the risk, right, there's no turning back. And so today we're going to actually talk about if this is you, and I think it's all of us, is that there's a piece of us that's, that's anxious when we're about to make big decisions. And there's some times where you and I can be petrified. Or if you have an engine, an engine gets seized up when it doesn't have enough oil, and we just stop moving because the risk is so strong that we don't know how to move forward. That is very possible. The other thing that's possible is that this idea of risk actually happens when you come to the conclusion that Solomon came, is if there's no reason at all, if everything's going to be up in smoke, then why even try? Why even give any effort if there's any, like, why, is there any benefit or any gain whatsoever? And Solomon says, actually, there is. And so in the same way that you are alive, so we need to live and enjoy it last week, today he's actually saying, don't seize up, don't freeze, don't be petrified in fear of unpredictability. Instead, take a risk. But he actually says it wisely. And so there's this idea of risking things to taking steps of faith 
but then actually using this idea of doing these things wisely. And so let's, let's jump in. Uh, chapter 11 says this. Uh, the very first thing that we're going to see is the, that there is an unseen reward. And so the thing, like this idea of risk, is anything that we cannot see, right? And so it says this, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Time out. Anybody know what it means to cast your bread upon the waters? Neither do we. Next point. I mean, honestly, I mean, that makes no sense to anybody. Because if you cast your bread upon any waters, it gets soggy and it sinks. It ain't even coming back to you because it's at the bottom of the ocean. And so we looked at commentaries. I called my dad. I'm like, hey, like, what's going on here? All right, so here's what I know. Here's what I know. To cast your bread upon the waters is one of two things. Number one is it's, it's, it can be that this bread is this idea of, of goods or services or grain or something of value. So you load a boat with sustenance. And you actually set it loose. You set it upon the waters. And you watch it float away. And so the idea of casting your bread is actually put the, your inventory on a boat and let it go. Because one day it'll come back to you. And so this idea of a voyage or some kind of sea-bearing ship that's actually leaving port. And it's going to take a while for it to come back. We see a hint in 1 Kings 10 where King Solomon actually, it takes three years for him to see the ships that he set sail for. And it took three years for that his gold and silver and ivory to come back to him. So cast your bread upon the waters. You just simply put it there and watch it go away. For one day or after many days, you will find it. The second observation is that, one, it may just be about trade. I did call my dad because I've, I remembered that I, or I overheard this, this phrase at some point in my childhood. And I was like, Dad, what does it mean to cast your bread upon your, the waters? And he was like, oh, that's simple. He says it simply means to be generous. So in an old Appalachia, right, or old Georgia, this phrase may just mean for you to be generous, for you to give away something that is valuable to you. Like you may only have bread to eat for supper, and yet you share it with other people. And so when you share your goods or you give to the needy or you let something go, there's going to be a natural return back to you. You may not get repaid, you know, more bread, but you will get repaid in the satisfaction of helping other people out. Does that make sense? And so this idea is that you're going to have to let something go in order to find it. This is A plus B equals C. This means risk. You got to let whatever it is, you got to let it go in order to find it. And so the conclusion is do that thing that seems impossible is that there is something that looks foolish or looks like it's impossible, that you actually have to let something go in order to get it. And this is how he's able to walk through it, is that there are rewards in this life, in this life, in the way that we live, but oftentimes they are unseen. We just can't see them. And we have to let things go before we're able to find it. It keeps going because we're still under number one. He says this, this is verse 2. 
He says, give. So in the same way that you cast your bread, you actually let go of this. To give a portion to seven or even to eight. This is proverbial, all right? So this is a Proverbs. And so you have to give a portion to, right? And there's an there's a imaginary space right here. So think about your voyage that you are about to cast your bread upon the waters. And there's a space right here. And that you have enough inventory, enough portion to fill four, five, six different boats. And what Solomon is saying is actually give a portion to seven. Like overextend the amount of goods or services that you have. Yes, you have enough inventory to, to fit in five or six vessels. However, spread it out to seven or he says even to eight. Because there is something. For you know that. Uh, for, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. What he's saying is disaster is going to come. There's actually going to be an elimination or an eraser to all of your math. Everything that you think of and that you are banking on or you are betting on or you are calculating, guess what? There's a massive eraser for all of those equations. And everything that you do that you think is a solid decision is actually going to come back and it's actually going to cost you more. And so he says it's actually better for you to spend a little more money and actually diversify your goods over seven ships, maybe even eight, because there is disaster that's going to happen. And if one of those ships sinks, at least you have a large majority of those goods. And so if you do some simple math, one-eighth versus one-sixth, you're going to keep more of your goods if you diversify or you spread it, spread it out. And so there's risks that we are to make. Cast your bread upon the water like there is an unseen reward. And yet we do this wisely. And so this idea of risking does not come divorced from this idea of doing it with wisdom or with a principle. And so that's why the conclusion is be wise in your risk taking. But Solomon is not backing off the fact that you and I are, are just risk averse. That we hate the idea of taking this step of faith or off, you know, off into uh, something unknown. And yet he's telling us, like, no, take the risk, but make sure that you are wise in that. Number two is actually found in verse three and four. And it says this, there is a cause and effect but there is no guarantee. He's, this, is, this, is, this is ancient language, so it's hard to, to, to teach. But there is a cause and effect, but no guarantee. This is how it unrolls here. He says, if, so that's your cause and effect, right? If the clouds are full of rain. You got a cloud, it's full of rain. If they're full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. That's your if, then, right? There's an imaginary then right there. If they're full, they will empty, Right? That's a very natural occurrence. If a tree falls to the south or the north, if you have a tree that's standing up and it falls, whether it's to the north or to the south, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Pretty simple, right? Full clouds, empty. Felled trees stay felled, right? Right? They're 
on the ground. There's no apparatus to get it back up and standing again. Like if it's going to fall, it's going to just stay on the ground. If it's going to fill up full of rain, it's going to empty. That's very simple to us. So how in the world does that, how does that play into this idea of risk wisely? Because all of you in here are mathematicians and you are counting your cost and you're trying to be measured and you're trying to be smart and you're trying to look at the calculations and you're trying to make sure that there is a guarantee to whatever you're about to do. And Solomon is saying, there may not be a guarantee. You may not know how it ends. And so as good as you are with this idea of cause and effect, the fact that you're looking at the tree and it's down or the cloud is raining so that means it's full, the realities of cause and effect is this. He who observes the wind, who's also looking at the tree that's down and also the cloud that's full, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who guards the clouds will not reap. There's a chance in life that you are too calculated where you outsmart yourself. And so you are looking to the clouds and you are looking at the wind and you've made a decision that it is too risky, that it's not worth doing. It's not worth putting myself out there. It's just not worth it. And so yes, there's a cause and effect, but there's simply no guarantee. So you are frozen. This is pretty simple. There's a, there's a man who is sowing in the springtime. And every time you throw seed up in the air, right? And the wind catches it, where does it go? Not there. And so this farmer is on a windy day and he's looking around. He's like, it's too windy today. And he goes back and he watches the ESPN. He comes out the next day and he looks and he's like, well, it's got a touch of wind, Right? Not today. So he goes back in and he just never gets to the sowing part. In the same way, the reaping, the harvest comes. And it's just that there, he looks, he's like, it looks like a chance of rain today. So I'm just going to go back inside and I'm not going to gather. I'm not going to reap. And so if you've ever thought about gathering a, a, a crop like cotton, right? You look at cotton and it means and you cannot gather cotton in the rain. Right? It has to be hot or, or hay even. If you just look at the, the guys here in Appalachia, on a wet day is not the time where you like cut and you bell hay. You need a, a wonderful day. It cannot, it cannot rain those days. But what he's saying here is you're way too calculated. And so what you end up doing is doing nothing at all. He says life is vain. It's like a vapor. And so your conclusion potentially may be, well, what's the point? He's saying life is so very complicated, so why even try? And he's simply telling us just because you can make these observations in life, just because you're able to come to these types of conclusions does not mean that you are correct. Because God is the one who's given you a season to sow and a season to reap. And so when we outthink ourselves, we get into all kinds of trouble. 
Are some of you in here overthinkers? Are some of you potentially too calculated? Are some of you so frozen in fear that you're not willing to take a step? And what God has said is, I've ordained a season for you to sow. So it may be a little windy, but this is still the time in order to do that. Or this is the exact time to reap, so we've got to do it now. Not to pick on our other elder. But uh, now is not the traditional season to be planting a church. In fact, they call it a young man's game. And so when Jerry Williams feels the call of God on his life, it may not be the most calculated decision. And yet what he does is he says, this is the season that God has given me. And to step into that is called obedience rather than just smart. And so maybe, just maybe, some of you are in a season where you feel God tapping you on the, on the shoulder to actually do something for him, but maybe it's just not smart. Maybe conventional wisdom means that you need to walk away from it. But no, what Solomon is actually telling us in this conclusion, I mean, this is, this is the, one of the last conclusions is this message for you and I to actually take steps of risk or faith for him and him alone. What types of things are you risk averse, especially in light of the gospel, especially in light of disciples who make disciples who make disciples to be great commissioned people who give our lives to one kingdom, not the kingdom of self, but the kingdom of God fully and completely. He's asking us this morning to consider, all of us, to consider what risk, a wise risk, but what risk so that we simply overthink things. Verse 5 says this, or the conclusion is, you just don't know. This one's pretty easy. And you just don't know the way the Spirit comes to the bones of the womb of a woman with child. Right? Even with great technology, with great sonograms and those kinds of things, no one really knows exactly how bones come from cell division. Right? Right? Like... You can't, I mean, you don't know how that's possible. That was possible, or that was just a mystery 3,000 years ago. It's a mystery today. How? We just don't know the way the Spirit comes to the bones and the womb of a, a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You can't explain some things. Some things you just have to give to God. And ultimately, tomorrow, ultimately next week, we just have to give to God. This is a mystery, and so is tomorrow. This is a mystery, and so is the conclusion of whatever decision that you have on your plate right now. Solomon is saying, it may go good, it may go bad, you don't know, but ultimately we must rest and that God makes everything. And that is our confidence, not whether we're able to make a good decision or not. And that's the problem. All of eternity does not rest on our good decision making. Our trust and faith lands on God who knows everything and is sovereign over all things. We simply just don't know. And so we think that not knowing should actually like do the opposite. 
being limited actually does the opposite and make us more lazy or more apathetic or, or seize us even more. But instead, it shouldn't do at all. Because all of these things, no matter what risk you're about to do, should be steps of faith, should be steps of humility, and should be steps of submission to God. When you say, I don't know, but God does, that is a faith statement. When you say, I don't know, but God does, that is a statement of humility. And when you say, I don't know, but God does, that is submitting to him and his ultimate control over our lives. What Solomon is saying is, when you live your life this way, it's one faith step after and the next over and over and over. And guess what? We're men and women of faith who don't trust what we can see or hear. We trust what lies beyond. We trust an eternal truth that we may or may not ever be able to prove. And yet, these are ways that we just prove our ignorance and yet we continue to step forward in confidence when confidence should even be ours. Verse 6 says this. It says this. In the morning, sow your seed. And in the evening, withhold not your hand. Solomon is smart. Wisest person to walk planet earth minus Jesus. And he says, after all of these conclusions and all of these reasons that we just don't know and we just can't see, those kinds of things, this, this, the, the risk here is for you for non-action. Right? It's for, for, for inaction. But he says, instead of inaction... You actually get up in the morning and you actually go to work. In the morning, sow your seed. And in the evening, withhold not your hand. Make sure you're doing the same thing. Go to work. Yes, you don't know. Yes, you can't predict it. Yeah, you don't know what the outcome is. But here in verse 6, it says, no, get up and act as if it's going to succeed. Act as if it's going to work out. You don't know either way, but act as if it will. Get up and go and do. Yeah, it may be windy, but go and do because this is the season that God's asked us to. Do not withhold your hand for you do not know which will prosper this or that or whether both alike will be good. This morning, that evening or both. You just don't no. I did some math on my whiteboard, and if you walk a path about three or four feet wide that way for one acre, and then you walk back another three or four feet track, looks like, if my math is correct, that you're going to be able to scatter seeds about uh, two thought I had it memorized. Um, okay, you're going to be able to scatter seeds about two acres an hour, okay? So old farmers, if they did this, would do about two acres an hour. If you just go row after row after row after row after row. Farmer's day is about 12 hour a day, right? So that means minus a little lunch and, you know, water and those kinds of things, that if you do this all day long, that if you just go row after row after row, that means that you will have planted seeds, all right, we've sowed seeds for 20 to 25 acres in one calendar day. 
That's a lot of seed. If you start in the morning and you start scattering, you're like, man, it's perfect out here, right? And you just sow. But then at 10 in the morning, the wind starts picking up. Do you stop? No, you just keep on sowing. What about at three in the afternoon, a thunderstorm comes? You just keep on going. Because what this says is that you're going to do the same thing in the morning and the evening that you just keep on going. And after this X number of acres that you have planted, there's no way that you can look back at those seeds and say, that's going to succeed or that's going to succeed or both. There's no way that you can predict what's going to happen because of your one day's work. But God does. And it's going to take some time for you to figure out whether that day was wasted or not. And what Solomon is saying is, you do not know what will prosper. Either this, the first part of your day, or that, the last part of your day, or both will be good. You just don't know. But instead of not having action, he's actually encouraging action because he wants you to get up every day, trust God, get to work, and have faith in him and him alone. Not knowing what will prosper should drive us to work, not laziness. It actually pushes us to work, not laziness. Everything under the sun. This is our last kind of tip, our hat, to this this theme that's happened over and over and over for 11 plus chapters. This idea of under the sun. He says, light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. It's just a beautiful day, beautiful fall or spring, summer day. It's just pleasant. It's sweet. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Every time you see the sun, his mercies are new every morning. Let you rejoice in as many years or as many days that you're able to see the sun. If you see the sun, rejoice in that day. But let him remember... And here's the warning. Let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. And so with one part surety, second part reality. Yes, we live a life under the sun that's bright and good and sweet and beautiful. It's warming to our face and it's good. And yet there will be a shadow over all these days because of sin. This idea that these days will be dark. And a lot of those days, many of those days, will be more dark than good. And the reality is that it's vanity. And so, yes, these days are dark. Yes, these dark days are many. And yes, the days are vanity. And yet he doesn't back off the fact that we are to rejoice in being alive and to continue to trust him fully and completely with our lives. Fully and completely. At the end of this letter um, to all of us, there is a great assumption that you and I are looking for significance in life. There's one great big assumption that you and I are looking for purpose in our life. That you and me, men, women, children, boys and girls, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college, middle age, that we're all looking for meaning in this, in this life. 
And so chapter after chapter after chapter, Solomon has told us very explicitly what he sees under the sun. And so as my last parting shot for you, and my one conclusion of this one book goes a little bit like this, is that you can spend your time looking at things under the sun or grasping at things under the sun or giving your whole life to things under the sun or risking your relationship for things under the sun or going bankrupt for things under the sun or gathering wealth because there are things under the sun. You can spend your time in thus getting your purpose, your meaning, and your significance for things under the sun or for someone who lies beyond the sun. And that someone, of course, is God himself. God himself, who is beyond the sun, who is reigning and supreme over all things. All he's given us is today, but he's telling us, do not pursue only the things that you can see and feel and touch. Make sure that you honor God with your whole life, because it's only that Giving yourself over to him and his ways, that's the way in which you get some understanding. And so there is one who lies beyond the sun. His name is God. And God loves you and I so very much that he leaves heaven one day and he actually comes under the sun for us. And the things that we were holding so tightly to the things of significance and meaning, the things of prosperity, the things of significance, all of those things were satisfied and gained and ruled through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who lowered himself even to the point of death, death on the cross for us. He left heaven to come to earth. And the only way that our full meaning and full significance and full purpose is to see what God has authored from the beginning before the foundations of time for us. And it's for us to be reconciled with himself. Not through the things that we can make on this earth, but only what he has authored fully and completely. This has been a trip through Ecclesiastes for me. It's changed me fundamentally in so many ways. But what I want more than anything for us is not just for our minds to be stimulated, but our hearts to be opened and for us to be fully confessional. Am I giving my life to the wrong thing? Or the way that Jesus would say it, am I giving myself to the wrong kingdom? It's either the things under the sun or it's either the son himself, Jesus Christ. That challenge for you today. Are you trusting in only what you can see? Cast your bread upon the waters. For you will find it after many days. There's a bread that we must cast upon the waters. And it's called faith. It may be called risk in Ecclesiastes, but in the New Testament it's called faith. For you to step into the unseen of faith. And trusting in Jesus fully and completely. And you will not know. You will not be guaranteed what will happen until after many days. 
And our many days is we're going to have to wait until we're dead and gone. We're going to have to wait for eternity to happen on our body before we know whether we're right or wrong. Many people have invested lots of money to ship many things across the shores only to make a mere profit. What we're encouraging you this morning is for you to put your faith in Jesus fully and completely because of what he has done for you. Because the investment, right, the benefit is life, eternity with him forever and ever and ever. And you won't really know until you know. After many days, will we ever be able to find out and see him fully and completely? Blessed are those who believed in Jesus when they were able to see with their own eyes and touch with their own hands. But blessed are you who have never seen nor touched and still yet believe. The New Testament believer trusts in one we've never seen and we've never touched. And yet the promise, the investment, the profit, the goods, the services are so much more than what could line our pockets, but will protect us for all eternity. That's what Jesus offers us this morning. Let's pray. And so Jesus, I pray that we are left with this one question. Am I pursuing, am I using this life to pursue the things of this earth or simply to trust in you? We pray that as we look at everything under the sun, that we will find it wanting and we will find it short. We will find that it's short-lived and of very little value. And yet what we find in the person and work of Jesus is eternally of worth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.